0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Line 6. Line 6 is a musical instruments manufacturing company that specializes in guitar amp and effects modeling, and makes guitars, amps, effects pedals, and multi-effects. We introduced the world's first digital modeling amp, and we're behind the groundbreaking pod multi-effect, which revolutionized the industry with an easy way to record guitar with great tone. Line 6 will always take dramatic leaps so you can reach new heights with your music. And now your host, Bo Burchell.
1: Welcome everyone. Uh, It's Bo Burchell back here again taking over another episode of the URM podcast, Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. I am really excited about today because I have one of my favorite people, Phil Scrosso, with us. If you don't know who he is, he was in... As they Lay Dying, Woven War, Poison Headache, uh, he's toured with Nails, you know, he's played with us and Seosin, and just an all-around incredible guitar player and awesome dude, professional hair farmer, and <laughs> and uh, here he is, Phil, what's up? Hey, Bo, thanks for having <laughs> me, buddy. <laughs> so, dude, I posted a thing saying that we were going to be talking to you, and everyone was pretty excited, which... As am I, but yeah. So let's let's just jump right into it, and we'll be fast because I have to get to a session, and I know you have to take off too. So I guess for let's talk as I lay dying. I thought you were a founding member, but from what you were saying, you joined kind of shortly after.
2: Uh, yeah. So the band had formed, well, formed slash started in two thousand, and uh, they'd released a couple. I think one full length and an EP, and then uh, the the first full length uh, for Metal Off Metal Blade, Frail Words Collapse. And I had joined right after that was released, so I, you know, my touring with the band started with that album, and then led up to the next album, Shadows Are Security, where I finally was a um, contributing songwriter and. Performer on the album.
1: Awesome. Here's some questions that I have, and I think that people will probably want to know these answers too. So, I mean, you guys were probably one of the, the hugest metal bands of the time. You know what I mean? It was like, to me, it was like you guys, Kill Switch, and Lamb
2: of God uh, was, you know, they've always been huge. Pretty, pretty far up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd say, yeah, like, you know, those bands were you know, probably started a few years uh, ahead of us. And I feel like they were always kind of like big, big brothers to us. Killswitch especially just kind of maybe having a sound that was a little more relatable, uh, with their fans. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we just were always on tour, always, you know, putting albums pretty consistently. So, um, yeah, I think uh, that that really helps, you know, keep our fan base uh, interested in us. That you know, we never there was never enough time for them to find another band to like. Right. You just, <laughs> uh, we, you know, just we, we were always keeping busy.
1: Especially compared to now, because you figure now you can put out a crazy record that is something that no one's ever heard of before. Like, oh my god, this is that fresh new sound you were looking for, you know, and yeah. then. And then you like as soon as you get off tour, there's four bands that copied you and are on the radio
2: yeah, and you're you're not as uh, unique anymore it's um I mean which goes to show there are a lot of you know capable guitar players out there to hear something and and be able to emulate it, I guess, but, you know, no one can really, you know, emulate, like, Lamb of God or something, you know, they can all try and be close, but, I mean, or, like, a hate breed, it's like, you know, how many hardcore bands have there been after hate breed and hate breed, hate Hatebreed. Right. But, you know, I, I think if you really have that, you know, you're kind of a pioneer with a sound, then, you know, people will be close, but, you know, you, they'll still never match it, or, who knows, maybe they, they reinvent it, and, you know, are better than you.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, being that this is a show about like recording, like how, how much of like, Mm. let's just say your sound do you feel like is made up of gear versus the percentage that comes from like you and your hands or like, or like you and your, or I guess before we get into like playability, how much of it do you think just is like in like the riffs you write?
2: (sighs) Gear and I have always had this weird relationship that I don't really like it <laughs> I, um, I I'm intrigued by it and I'm intrigued by you know always just learning something new but i my passion with music you know stems mostly from how a song is written, how this story. Of you know these notes here lead into these other notes here, and your you know your root notes are changing and it's it 's kind of like how this song is evolving, but I guess you know a big part of it is having a good team in the studio with you, or uh, once it goes off to mixing and mastering it 's like we always liked having Colin Richardson uh, involved or um, Andy Sneep and stuff like that, so you hire these guys that you trust to take what you've kind of done and bring it to the next level.
1: First off, the fact that you got to work with Andy Sneap and Colin Richardson is just insane to me. It's, it's like, (laughs) pretty awesome. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so, so being that you've produced records with, like, Adam D and, you know, had records mixed by Andy Sneap and Colin Richardson, like, how important is, say, like, the production... Uh, compared to the mixing or like the mixing compared to the production? Do you feel like one is more important than the other?
2: I think production is obviously, you know, that's the the foundation for everything, obviously. You know, you know, starting with the drums, going to guitars, and then splitting off to bass and vocals after that, and then adding all the other auxiliary stuff. I mean, you really have to get it pretty awesome. I mean, it's got to be great because Um, If you're wanting to keep kind of pushing the sound of the genre, you want to go in there with great results from the studio and then hand it off to a guy like Andy Sneap or Colin and be like, "Hey, just elevate this, make this even greater." And every time we were so happy with what the results were coming from both of them, and um, so, but I think they had some good stuff to work with, some good performances, some good takes, and. And I think kind of the collaboration of little bumps here and there, little DB bumps, and add this and add that, kind of that little collaboration from our end still going on kind of always just made it better and better. Yeah. And, and then obviously you hand it to a guy like Ted Jensen to master it, and you're, it's like, yeah, there's no reason to get another pass from Ted Jensen. Right. It's like <laughs>
1: yeah. one,
2: and, one and done. Right. So I, I think you... Throughout the whole process, obviously, from when you're demoing and you're in the room, jammy, or like the whole goal here is to make this better and better, pretty much like on a daily
1: basis. Yeah. It's, fun, it's funny you say that because uh, even in our, you know, couple months touring together, like I feel like that kind of like hard work uh, attitude is very like that's just you. You know what I mean? Like as a person, you're very much like, all right, I need to do my best, make sure I'm like really delivering everything and like doing everything to the best of my ability. So I I don't know. I think that that's, it it kind of all makes sense now that, that you guys just worked that hard on the records. So I guess to dig a little deeper at that, I don't know very many people that have had the chance to work with a team like you said, like Adam D and then like those mixers and then Ted Jensen. So when you were done producing the record before it was mixed, are you generally at the feeling of like, man, this record's pretty good. I'm pretty happy with it. It just needs a little bit better mix.
2: Well, a lot of the time before even going into tracking, like officially tracking the album, we had already tracked pre pro with like a dedicated engineer like Daniel Castleman. We had already laid down drums, recorded everything, and then we were prepared. You know, from that point, we're like, you know, show them to the label. And they'd be like, wow, these demos sound great. And it's like, cool, well, they're going to sound greater because now we're going to have, you know, this guy on board and this guy on board. And like, we're just going to, you know, we are, I guess we were more than prepared and we had kind of figured out just kind of already by pre-tracking things, kind of what we needed to fix and all that stuff. And uh, we were always just very prepared for the most part, even though generally I would always want to, Add a million other things later on, um,
1: right?
2: <laughs> but you know, I, I guess that answers that.
1: Yeah. So it, I mean, it, it sounds like you guys pretty much had the record done before even going into the studio. So what? Do, so like with a band like you guys, like what does a producer do? Or like what? Are you, what are you looking for?
2: So I guess once we had gotten Adam D on board, he was you, you know, know about trim the fat and he, you know, lines like, don't bore us, get to the course. And we, you know, where, as I would, I would see a part as like four. I'm like, okay, yeah, just do things in four. He's like, hey, cut that in half. I'm like, do do it as two. (laughs) And he's like, he's like, trust me, trust me. And I'm, and once that, you know, mentality sunk in, it was like, yeah, like, wow, that really just kind of. You know, we we don't need that part to be as long as it was, and it really just helps move everything along. And Adam D also being like, "Hey, let's get a third chorus," because we used to be a two chorus band, say like on Shadows Are Security, and then he's like, "Let's get another chorus after the bridge," and we're like, "Really? Just can't go in this heavy part and be done?" And (laughs) like, so he was so helpful in us finding those songwriting um, just that ability and not to say every song has to be a three chorus song but, right. and you know we did two records with Adam and you kind of you learn from someone like that someone who's better than you at something who's been doing it for so long that you kind of learn their tricks and then you kind of know what they would say right and oh like adam would totally do this but i you then have that mentality as you're writing so you're you're Always having this producer mentality from the point of when you start creating, and so then we were like, okay, well, let's go with a different producer because we could totally have Adam back on board again, but we we kind of need to just change it up. So that's when we went with Bill Stevenson, mm-hmm. who you know plays drums for Descendants and recorded a lot of the Rise Against records, and it seemed like more of a as our band was kind of you know gaining success, it was like, well, we need to kind of break off into this world that it's you know just a little more. I mean, we always wanted to have technical metal riffs, but we also wanted to kind of that less is more approach with some songs, so we thought Bill would be great for that. And then Bill really reintroduced a lot of new ideas to us as well, so um, that's why we wanted to work with him again on Woven War's uh, first album. So yeah, I would say that producers kind of bring in just that fresh perspective on how a song's arrangement, how the flow should be, and... Also, they're just the mediator. You know, they right. really have to between five different opinions. They have to be the one that lets people know that their opinion is heard, and you know, make ev- everyone feel like you know they're involved. But at the end of the day, you trust your producer is pretty much that sixth member to to get things in a right place that everyone's on board with.
1: Right. So from there, uh, walk me through the process of like what it's like. To produce a record with somebody huge like that and you're in the band. So like once you're done tracking everything, is it like you get to go home with roughs, or is it just kinda like, I remember hearing the record in the studio, but I have no idea what it actually sounds like because I've never like take taken it home and listened to it in my car or anything?
2: Yeah, I would say I mean I can't remember. We would, we would kind of get like studio roughs, but I didn't like hearing it unless you know what was the point? If oh, there's no bass on this, or there's no vocals. It's like it's like oh, I can you know I've spent all day with the guitars. It's like I already know the guitars are fine. Drums are already. If we're already on the guitars, then drums pretty much are are good. Even though changes do come along, you know. Where you're like, hey, we should edit this drum part because this new guitar part's cooler, and like, blah blah blah. But it's not until you start getting, you know, you send them off to mixing, and then you start getting, you get that first rough back, and you're so excited because you're like, what did they do? Like, to what did they do to the guitar tone? What do they do to the the drums? Like, where you know, how are they getting right. this new uh, new power added to everything? Which is, you know, that's the for me that's the appeal of Andy Sneap and and Colin is that they just can either pull so much power or add power to the part that you're just like wow our snare sounded weak before and you know you kind of know what they're doing but at the same time no one does it like them. Right. So that was always the most exciting and there's never really you know there's little tweaks you know the 1dB the 2dB tweaks that I would, you know, generally have a, you know, pretty long list of, you know, just what I, kind of how I want things to hear, uh, stand out and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, like I'm the I'm the freak <laughs> with that stuff, and it probably drives them crazy. But you know, I've I've I've, I've sat there with Colin before, and we've we, when he came out to San Diego and mixed uh, it was the Powerless Rise album, and he he was like Phil, like you get behind the computer, you make the little tweaks that you want to hear. And he was always on board with everything. And and so it was, um, I don't know, very validating that, hey, maybe I'm not crazy because, you know, Colin's like in the back of the room air guitaring because he's so stoked on how like all those little tweaks make it sound better, I guess.
1: I would agree with that 100%. I do think that that is a quality of a really good and... What's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, a confident mixer, you know what I mean? Someone that knows that getting the right feedback from the right members of the band can actually really help elevate the the mix and the record to a level that may not have been capable without that feedback, you know, and especially with someone who's as dialed in with the songs as someone you know, like you or anyone else, you know, that's heavily, you know, that was there for the tracking and knows, has the vision of it. Especially when I do mixes, it's like when bands are able to come in and be like, oh yeah, no, like I've got this vision, this is supposed to be like this. There's definitely, yeah, exactly, those moments where you're sitting there like, man, that is so cool, I, I, I didn't see it that way, but it's so much better.
2: Totally, yeah, I mean, it's, I can, I've heard of nightmares, nightmares uh, with other bands where it's like, a total opposite approach with the guy mixing and you're like, how did that happen? But I guess, you know, like how did you guys even get in a room and decide to do a record together? Like that sounds like a terrible pairing. Right. But, but, you know, that's why, you know, (laughs) it takes a good level of intuition, I guess, to, to know who you're going in with. And you're like, hopefully they're, you know, a team player with what our vision is, is and, you know, fortunately, we've—it's been great. Yeah. Even when it comes down to like we're a week, you know, past our master, like uh, you know, the labels saying we're behind, we got to push the release date back, and you're like, no, but this one guitar lead has to have this one dB bump. Right. It's like I don't care. It just it needs this, or I can't listen to it ever again.
1: Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's like on the mixing side of things. And then what is it like on... Because you figure Adam D is just known for such like like a guitar tone guy. What is it like? What's the process like in the tone dialing in department? Is it the type of thing where you guys just like plug into to like an amp sim in Pro Tools? Or do you like rent every amp in San Diego and then try them out? Or is it like... He shows up with an amp. That's this is the one. Or how does how does it work?
2: Well, back then, I mean, their amp simulators weren't really a thing. I don't I don't think. I mean, we're talking over for Shadows. That was twelve years ago. Funny funny story. An Ocean Between Us, the first album that Adam did with us uh, is 10 years old as of yesterday.
1: Oh dude. Well, happy birthday.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, which I was like, wait, on a Monday? I was like, I thought they came out on Tuesdays. Anyway,
1: yeah, so yeah, totally.
2: I'm like confused and I'm like, all right, whatever. Yeah. So, so basically it was, you know, and I was really young back then. I didn't know, like I said, gear and I haven't always had this great relationship. So I always have to give credit to to Adam or to Andy Sneap and to Colin Richardson because they would reamp our guitars.
0: Oh. So
2: they, that's part of how we viewed the mixing process was that they have the gift of getting the best guitar tones. And we'd hear stories from them, how bands were like, don't touch our guitar tone. You know, we, we printed it like how we want it to sound. But then, you know, you got, they have from that point, Andy and Colin would have to shape the drums and everything around and kind of work with how these guitar tones sit in the mix. Yeah. So, I mean, it would have been ideal, and we actually had the opportunity on Powerless Rise when we brought Colin out, to bring him 12 different amps, and they checked all of them, and they were like, all right, guys, here's the shootout. And we were like, this one. It, th- we loved this sound. And then it's like, all right, get our hands on it, make these little baby tweaks with them. And it was like, that was the collaborative part of like getting our guitar tone with them. But for the most part, we always viewed it, these guys, Andy Sneap especially, is just the king of metal guitar tones.
1: Yeah. And then so... You know, obviously time goes on, As I Lay Dying is no longer. How is the process different in Woven War than in As I Lay Dying? And what I mean by that is going from being like, you know, what I'll say is like one of the hugest bands in the world, in the metal world, to like basically having to start over.
2: Yeah, starting, you know, the four of us, the instrumental side of As lay Dying, of sticking together and sort of having that musical bond, carrying over into that wasn't as drastic as you know four other guys who've who never played in the band together. Right. So we kind of knew we had our way of how things worked, and then obviously the big thing is bringing bringing in a new singer and adjusting the sound to that singer's strengths, mm-hmm. which was you know the more melodic you know singing. It was. No, not a single real scream on that first record from Shane. Right. So it was something that we, you know, were always interested in doing. And I feel like the Aslay Dying sound musically was sort of headed in that direction. Mm-hmm. Although we would have still probably done a lot more like metal or thrashy sort of things. Like Woven War wasn't that thrash element. And. Because Shane's singing over a thrash song wouldn't really suit his strengths. So we kept things making the music more rock based, I guess. It kind of had that rock, that tinge of rock rockness. And <laughs> but still it was at a time where it was like, man, I am so tired of hearing breakdowns the way they that they've been for the past ten years. So it was like, let's not do this. Like there was kind of this mental checklist of let's not do this. Let's add these other elements here and give it a shot. And, you know, it's just, it was a very controversial uh, amongst our uh, Dazzly Dying fans, controversial album. And it was, uh, you know, I think there were just a lot of things when you're Four guys coming from the same band before. It's like, well, why isn't this As I Lay Dying? Right. Why isn't this like the same thing? <laughs> and like, why? I I don't get what you guys did. And it's such a letdown. And you're like, well, this isn't As I Lay Dying. This is something new. And sorry to, you know, sorry right. that <laughs> you know we're the ones the band had to you know stop playing and like figure out what to do next. Like right. you know, it's our fault for you know taking this risk of. A new sound we were interested in pursuing, so um overall, we're all very proud of it, but you know then you know, from that first album to the second one, it was like, all right, what elements do we want to add again and not do right so um which you know a lot a lot of people would probably agree that it's a heavier album, mm-hmm. and uh I think that was something that we all collectively were like, all right, let's get back to the heavy stuff. Cause you know, we go out on tour and it's like, man, we're kind of the lighter band out of all this. And it's like, man, like it, you know, let's get it heavy again. So, uh, that was kind of a big motivating factor to do that. And, Mm um, yeah, I'm still just as proud of that album as well. So it's, um, and it's, it's a lot different, you know, changing the tuning, on that album, kind of, uh, it's it's just a whole different register than anything that we had done before. So it's still something that's like, whenever I hear it or hear a song, I'm like, oh, that's still refreshing to hear. At least,
1: yeah. I for me. I actually really love that record, and I still get excited. When you were in the back of the bus, just listening to the mixes over and over again, like making those notes of like the half dB up here, one dB there, what the heck is this? Oh man, like this needs to be fixed. (laughs) This this has got to be up. This is wrong. Where's my solo? Why is this muted? You know, like (laughs) like like, I just remember that, and it was just it's so cool to like hear the record all finished. And you're right because it totally all those notes just make it so great
2: yeah, it just brings it together, and, and uh, you know you're obviously a production guy, so you know you're you're probably the same exact way that it's you just you hear it a certain way, and you just gotta see it through until it's it's right.
1: Yeah, so now I guess moving from woven war, you've got poison headache, right?
2: Yeah, Poison Addict's been a band with two other guys, uh two of my good buddies back from San Diego that we've been doing, you know, jamming some of those songs for a long time. Many, many years. Mm -hmm. Um and it was just to get any momentum really going with that because I was doing the Asley Dying stuff, doing the Wolvermore thing. It was just more of a fun jam thing, like, man, you know, these songs are really fun, but are they ever gonna see the light of day? So then finally there was a window of time to do it. And it was it was awesome because Poison Headache is unlike all as Lay dying or woven war obviously right so it was this other side of me that you know really loves like hardcore and more like i guess crossover whatever like mixed with like just more crustier riffs or something <laughs> like it like like entombed you know like an hm throw an hm2 pedal in there or something just right. dirty you know and um. So, or like a crowbar sounding riff, you know. And it yeah. was. It's just a whole other side of me that I, you know, never could do really with uh, As A Dying or Woven War. And so it was finally the time to do that. And you know, that record I took on doing a lot of the vocals. I engineered all the guitars. I recorded the bass. Um, I sang some on it. So I was just. It was really like. If this is ever gonna get done, I really got to do a lot right. with it. Uh, even writing lyrics, which I had never really done before. But I, in doing all these things, I found like, wow, this is like really fulfilling for me. And uh, even though it's more like a punk kind of hardcore thing, like I'm, I'm really proud that you know me and my buddies were able to finish this record and kind of start this other other you know journey with with this sound of what we can do.
1: Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, I think that the people like us that are doing it, that have such a high passion for it, it's to us, it really is something that we have to do, you know? And yeah. and it's like, yeah, when you get, it's like, you know, you just, you have to do these projects and it's like, you have to have an outlet for your creativity and your music. And yeah, you're right. It's like, as soon as you get these projects done, you're just like, wow, I am so fulfilled. You know, like it's, yeah, it's Awesome,
2: it's rewarding, yeah.
1: And you're speaking of taking on other jobs. You're also you're also working in like I guess more of the management side with a couple different bands too now, right?
2: Yeah, it sort of started the whole managing uh, tour managing thing. Is that none of my bands had things going on this year, so <laughs> um, I'm like, all right, well, how can I? You know, last year I was doing you know four different. Musical projects, um, you know, with doing the Woven War record, the Poison Headache record, playing Seosin songs, learning and playing Nails songs. And I, you know, I was pretty busy as a guitar player. And, you know, once this year started, it was like, hey, everyone's just kind of going to like chill out. And, you know, I left Woven War and, and I was, I was like, okay, well, I need to sort of be doing me, something music related. And if I'm not going to be doing guitar right now, then, you know, how else can I put my strengths to good use? And the management side of things sort of, you know, worked out. I've got this artist, author, and Punisher from San Diego, who from the first moment I saw him, I was like mesmerized by what he does as like a one man you know, sort of electronic industrial doom band. And him and I sort of became friends and just the idea of like, you know, he probably needs help like (laughs) with a lot of things. He's a one man band and he's, he does so much. He's like one of the hardest working guys. And I just was like, Hey, do you need help with anything? And that's kind of how that relationship sort of started out. And then from there, you know, found uh, the band animals as leaders kind of not having management and but being at a level of success that they sort of need help with some things um and that's kind of how you know my management partner uh matt and i sort of got involved and then from there it was like hey can you guys find us a tour manager for the tour and i was like when are the dates and i got you know saw the routing and i was like I'll just go out and do it and figuring out how, you know, their light production, all this stuff. I was like, this is great because it gets me still out on the road, which I've always been doing since I was 18. But I can also help this band in other ways. And um, I'm totally you know, fortunate enough that I I still have this music-related job that I can, you know, help out these other bands that I believe in.
1: It's pretty inspiring, too, just, I guess, just the way that it seems like whatever you kind of put your mind to to do and to learn, uh, whatever the task, it seems like you're able to put in the hard work and accomplish it, you know, whether it be like like you said like oh well they don't they need this i'm going to learn how to do it and go do it and like and it's not like you're just tour managing that's not like just going out and saying like oh yeah my friend's band is going to go and like uh <laughs> do some shows at a local bar and i just have to kind of like get them drink tickets i mean like <laughs> like they're they're like a no joke band i mean they're huge
2: yeah it was you know you, i guess i've just been trying to, to take on these these things that it's you know it's a little intimidating at first but it's kind of a, once you get into it and start doing it you'd be surprised at what you're capable of doing and there's always so much more obviously that i i have to learn and and i kind of i like learning new things and maybe yeah. for the longest time i mean i like learning new songs it was always like oh this band like want me to this band wants me to play with them. I can't wait to get the songs so I can start learning them. So with like a new task is like tour managing, I was like, I feel like I can do that. I feel like it's something that I'd be okay spending my time doing and once I took it on, I, I was really, really stoked to be doing it. And so the, from that point on, you know, they, they wanted me to finish out the rest of this year and kind of see what what goes on next year. But it's like, well, you know, I'm glad that, that they're happy and they know that I'm willing to do whatever it takes and work my ass off to to get things, get the job done.
1: Yeah. Do you ever feel like you have kind of an advantage, like being a tour manager Because you were in a band and you know what you want from a tour manager? Like, like, because sometimes I feel like I have an advantage producing or mixing because I'm in a band and like I know what I want from them. So it's pretty easy to kind of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, if I was a tour manager, I want to, you know, the things that are important to me is like when I wake up in the morning, I want a day sheet and I want to know where the nearest, you know, coffee is, what the Wi-Fi password is and where the showers, you know, <laughs> like. Exactly.
2: exactly <laughs> Yeah. This is what I would want. And that's that's how I see that my my strengths you know, work in that way as opposed to, you know, if I had some other random job, I'm like, this isn't music, you know, it's like, yeah, it, it is totally relatable for me. And even though I, you know, can't out of my bunk, you know, <laughs> in the afternoon. It's like I'm usually, you know, one of the first guys like to to be in the venue and get things rolling. It's like, you know what, I don't mind this because I don't mind working hard. It's just gotta be for something that I'm I'm passionate about. So uh, yeah, I would totally say that, you know, for the most part the guys can you know, whoever I work for, they can rely on me that, yeah, you've done this before you you don't want to suffer and like you want to make this as easy as possible so that's generally what i try to do
1: no that's cool we actually have a lot of questions uh from uh subscribers so you cool if i fire off some of those
2: fire off i'll try to keep them brief i sometimes just you know we'll talk forever so cut Mm, me off
1: you and me both i'm like (laughs) diarrhea mouth uh chris (laughs) funny uh I don't know if this is like a common thing or not but Chris I mean you know Boosty he I forget how it came up but anyways he was telling me a story about me and he mentioned that I will sometimes get him in what he calls a small talk headlock (laughs) (laughs) and he's like yeah dude sometimes you just won't shut up and you keep repeating yourself and you just keep talking about shit that doesn't matter And I'm like, like, I don't know, man, I'm sorry, I just like talking to people.
2: It's like the Larry David stop and chat, and it's, how do I get out of this?
1: Totally. Anyways, but yeah. Rodney says, uh, the rhythm section and everything that you're involved with has always been a goal of mine to obtain. How the hell do you come up with such catchy riffs? they have the ability to be where I can literally hum them out and, and they're memorable. I guess oh, what he's asking is, God. what is the secret to you writing such sick riffs?
2: Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's the hardest thing to answer, like how you, you are the way you are. I guess what I focus on for me as, as being a musical person is listening to good music for the most part, like listening to something that is inspiring. To me, you know, that the sound could influence how I am. So, you know, I've always listened to things with good guitar playing for the most part. To Mm -hmm. me, you know, it has good guitar playing. And, you know, it stands out. Like, wow, that's a memorable riff. Like, that's, like, I can do the same thing with all of my favorite bands. And, like, even after just hearing it once. Right. So I've always just kind of wanted to write things that are memorable for other people and just a little melody here and there and I don't know how it got shaped in my mind of how a melody should be but you know I always was like well I like this you know at the end of the day I'm like hopefully my band likes this okay the band <laughs> the band cuz ultimately you're writing for your band like right. i mean it starts with you hey let say this isn't too bad Might as well put it down on the record tape or put it into Pro Tools. And then you go, Hey guys, you know, I, you know, you send it off to them. And it's like, you're nervous because you're like, I hope they like it. It, They could just totally say, no, this is dog crap. And just like, nope. And which we've all been there. It's like, wow, man, I thought that had a chance, but nope, dog crap. So then, you know, once they say, oh my God, like, I love that. That's great. You know, you're just like, awesome. This is going to become something that gets thrown out to the rest of the world. And fortunately, like a lot of, you know, it's resonated with a lot of, you know, the fans that, you know, they're like, wow, that's, something that they want to listen to as well. Yeah. But I, my whole thing is just be inspired by what you listen to and, you know, kind of push yourself to, you know, create something that is, you know, unique in a way somewhat unique. You know, (laughs) you doesn't, you know, originality is always a thing of like, man, I haven't heard this before. And, you know, I, and this is kind of like a clever thing. It's just like kind of, those few things, it's like, well, that makes, you know, like now, I am now content with this riff. Right. So other than that, I get, I, that's all I got.
1: <laughs> here's here's another one from Rodney. Uh, he says, this may be odd, but I am really curious of the guitar tone on Nothing Left. Uh, you know, I'm assuming you know what song he's talking about, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. That's... During the opening riff, there seems to be some, this resonance woof coming from the guitars when they palm mute it's always been kind of an ear candy thing for me uh any memory on what that setup and mic being used on that is
2: that was like i said i mean going back to the call that was colin or that was an andy reamp
1: what did you use for guitars
2: for guitars back then, I feel like we always used a Les Paul studio with a an EMG 81 on that record. Mm-hmm. Nothing too crazy. Nothing just you know, that's kind of the stand that was the standard back then before I guess like Fishman influences came around. But I, I would say that and um Maybe just, like, I've always, uh, I have, like, a pretty heavy right hand. Yeah. So I would say why maybe some things don't, you know, why what makes me sound different than some other players playing the same riff is that, well, I, like, beat into the strings really, like, hard without taking them out of pitch, obviously. Yeah. Um, And Adam D is the same guy. Hand him a guitar and it's just, like, you know, very... Like overpowering right hand you know James Hetfield that kind of thing Um, so I would say that's a big part of it but as far as like the amp uh, that was used I'm like starting to draw a blank on that but I know Colin Mike's uh, I would have to say that I just can't even remember I wouldn't even want to give a wrong answer right yeah so maybe I can find out again what it was and uh, I'll text it to you or something (laughs) okay
1: But the main the the positive ID we got was uh, Les Paul Studio with the EMG eighty one. Yes, it's so funny how that's just like the classic that everyone wants to hate on, but like has been so great on like so many records, you know. Exactly. I mean,
2: it's (laughs) if it's not broken, don't fix it. But at the same time, there's you know like the Fishman Fluence. I I, it makes me want to play guitar more.
1: Oh yeah. I remember, dude, first day of rehearsals with you, and uh, I remember I thought my rig sounded so sick, and then you showed up with uh, your guitar, my Charvel, yeah, yep, and uh, just a fifty-one fifty, and like your tone like blew me away, and I was like so. Like, like, just confused and upset, and like, it's like it's only a feeling that you get if you're a guitar player, and another <laughs> guitar player has a like a, his tone schools you, and you're and you can't figure out why. You know what I mean? You're just like, dude, like my world just got turned upside down. I've always had the best tone. Like what's yeah. going on right now? This Am I in some sort of weird twilight zone? What the yeah. hell? <laughs> and yeah, I just remember. And then like when you went to go to lunch, uh, I think you went to Jimmy John's and then I plugged my guitar into your amp and I was like, oh man, this 5150 sounds awesome. And I was like, nope, still doesn't sound as good as Phil. And then I plugged your guitar into my amp, and I was like, "Shit, that sounds way better than my guitar." Poor, and, yeah. And then, but still, it was like even when I picked up your guitar and plugged it into your amp, it was like I still don't sound as crushing as Phil. Like, <laughs> all right, fine, Phil, you win. You know.
2: <laughs> I, I, my it was my job to keep you on your toes. So, yeah. so. <laughs> but Ugh. you know. If you spend time with it enough, then you're just like, man, this this feels so good. This sounds so good. And you know, I I love my Charvel guitars, and I love like from the second I got my hands on one, I was really stoked on it. Same with the you know, throw the Fishman in there. Yeah, and I've just I've always been happy with that. And it's like I couldn't picture like really changing to something else at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, the Fishmans are just so sick. Yeah. Um, and like every other guitar that like comes into the studio, it's always it's always like a noticeable difference. Like, like yeah. even if the guitar player likes like his guitar a little bit better, and he's usually just kind of like it's a mental block about it, the uh-huh. rest of the band always picks the guitar with the Fishmans in it. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, oh, dude, that one's just better. It sounds clearer and like way more. Just better. I can't even describe it. And it's like, just oh, better. shit. More better. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, moving on. Uh, John Purifoy, he said, he just says practice routines. Like, did you have any practice routines that you were doing? Um, like during when you were just like shredding all the time?
2: On tour?
1: Yeah. Or I guess maybe, yeah, mainly tour. Let's stick to touring.
2: Touring, I usually just had a few drinks. Okay. I didn't really warm up that often. And, and, I didn't like warming up. I don't really like warming up, and I and it was it was also this back in I was like dying days. It, mm. I was just. I mean, I'd come home from tour and not even touch my guitar for weeks.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it was just, if I'm not inspired to like pick it up and like create with it, then I don't have like practice techniques and things really. Over the years, I've kind of learned. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe as I was getting more technical things with As I Die, I was like, okay, this kind of might as well, you know? But yeah. I always, I was, you know, felt confident that if, if, I had like a drink or a cup, a few drinks, that my mind would not be overthinking as much as I do, mm. and I would just play guitar because it felt good to play guitar, um, as opposed to I gotta play this this riff perfectly, I gotta play this song perfectly, like, and oh no, I just messed up, and then now that I'm thinking that I messed up, I'm messing up again, like on this next part, and it's just like. I'd rather just be loose and calm and just enjoy playing and enjoy how it sounds. So um, I think once I started jamming with you guys, I just was getting to this point of I like just playing guitar more often. Right. So it's not that I'm warming up. I'm just like, this is fun again. Like, this is fun to do.
1: Actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, I do remember you were just always jamming no matter what. You were like, yeah. Yeah. Now that I actually think about it, you just always had a guitar and you were creating back there. Yeah, back in the, back in Phil's apartment in the back of the bus that you Phil's just you took over our back lounge.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was also learning a lot of things too. Like, I, I mean, if I'm learning nail songs and it's like yeah. well, have, that, kind of was my warm up on Taste of Chaos. Was right. like, I like, got these nail songs <laughs> I got to learn. You know, like, oh, I'm good. I'm good on this sales and stuff speed wise. But and that's what you know. And then with you know, there's this other band that I was you know I was gonna I, I was trying out for at the time, and I was learning all these like solos and stuff and then I was trying to make and Seos- songs have more butt rock stuff to it like these <laughs> squeals and bends I was like I was
0: like
1: yeah
2: like you know I feel like I'm just immersed in guitar right now and just having fun with it
1: that's awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> we covered this a little bit uh, Dave Escobar says I'd love to hear about Azalea Dying working with Colin Richardson and Adam D any details about those sessions would be awesome We kind of discussed it a little bit. Can you tell us anything Uh, Royce Whitaker says, uh, I'm really interested to know Adam D.'s tracking methods and what he uses in his chain. His stuff is always the tightest. Any any insight on that?
2: Oh, I mean, back then I I wasn't looking over the engineer's shoulder as much as I do now. Mm -hmm. So I can't really... Right. Adam is very... I mean like the first record working with Adam, knowing his history, having toured with Killswitch, um, you know, it was kind of a nervous sort of like, oh, he's going to track me and and know that I, and learn that I really suck at guitar. And I'm going to be frustrated with myself. And like, he's probably going to be like, I could do that in my sleep. Mm -hmm. And so I was like really nervous. And Adam he, he knows me. like We're really good buddies. And he's always told me, he's like, you think way too much about stuff. <laughs> and he is a pretty less is more kind of guy. And I've always just wanted to hear guitars a certain way. And like on the Powerless Rise, he, he thought I was crazy. And I think he stopped tracking me. <laughs> and Daniel Castleman would come in because, probably because, I mean, I, I liked working with Daniel uh, a lot, and I think Daniel was patient with me with how crazy I was, and he was also willing to, to do whatever it was, versus Adam, he was like, no, man, it's fine. Don't, like, it doesn't need to be changed. And I'd be like, no, I'm looking at it right there. Right. I heard it, I heard it, but I'm also pointing at the waveform of what I want changed, <laughs> it, you know? Yeah. And so... But I listen back to those guitars and I say those are like to me, some like they're pretty tight guitars, you know. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of how tight it. Like, you could solo those out, and anyone who wanted to hear them, it's like those that like that's the best I could, you know, I could do. And like, I'm you know, I'm pretty stoked on it. So, um, I think Adam. As much as like he's done so many like metal like more mechanical metal records, Adam's like a rock guy, and a lot of times he's like I only listen to top forty radio. Like he's he's very pop uh, structure oriented, yeah. as in just a song being a good song and having a good flow to it.
1: Yeah, um, and you hear that a lot with Killswitch.
2: Absolutely, they know how to write a hit. So I think he knew enough that we were good players. He had, you know, as a producer, you've got all the elements there that can do their job. It's just he has to kind of trim the fat and, um, you know, be the overseer of of all things. Because as a producer, that's you know you're making sure from all your from coming from your demo sessions, getting getting your drums in order, your your prelay and all that stuff, and um, getting all your markers and just the structure of the recording process it has it starts here and it ends here and it's got to be done or else it's on your producer's ass
1: right now would you say um you know working with adam and uh bill stevenson uh they they were basically the two producers that you guys worked with in as dying right Yes. Did, did they have, like, did they kind of like track records, like, in the traditional sense of, like, okay, let's track drums first, then bass, then guitars, then vocals? Or was there anything unusual about the way either one of them worked that you remember?
2: I would say no. no Pretty traditional. Drums going first and, and then guitars and, and then, you know, splitting it off to bass and vocals once rhythms for a song were done and then you know i would do a lot of the overdubs and if a song had a lead that nick was playing or a solo then he would do it and for for the albums that adam did we get eventually got to a point where we set up two guitar stations to where I could be tracking, you know, like all the rhythms, and then Nick could be doing whatever leads in the solos he was doing. So we could both kind of be productive during the day as opposed to, hey, I'm going to, you know, work first from eight to, You know, not 8 a.m., probably like 10 a.m. to like 6 p.m. and then you come in 6 p.m. to midnight. It was like, no, we both want to work during the day. So we would start getting these two guitar stations going and having two different engineers. Um, That's cool. So I think it was like everyone could feel like they're productive during the day, uh, but nothing really... Nothing really crazy. Pretty traditional still.
1: You guys just mainly double track guitars or like quad rhythms?
2: Always uh, double rhythms for sure. And then we would do thunder chugs as we would call them. So for a lot of the heavy parts, we would throw another two guitars in there. And they I would sort of thicken things up here and there. Really now make it w- punch,
1: I guess. So when you call it thunder chugs, would it like say if you had a riff that was kind of like, so you would basically do another track that was like type of thing.
2: It would be shout out to unearth by the way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do the best and dude, best uh, best breakdown ever of all time.
2: I, I know, I know you're a fan. Uh, yeah, definitely one of the best for sure. It, I would say we probably yeah actually just the chugs. Just one. why not? We
1: just to kind they, of make those heavier.
2: Yeah, just really get that thicker sound out of the chugs, and um, I don't know. We just kind of always did that. And, yeah, we just always did that,
1: okay, awesome, uh Kyle Davis, wondering about your musical background growing up um did you have any musical background growing up?
2: I did I started playing guitar when I was ten. um I saw the Nirvana smells like teen spirit video, um probably you know when I was nine or something, so I didn't get my hands on a guitar. Until I was 10, and my dad was like, Well, if you're going to play this, then you're going to take lessons. So I immediately got into lessons, and my older brother as well. He's a few years older. And we started with classical guitar. And so our teacher was classically trained, and that was, you know, learning notes and all that notation and all that stuff. So it was something that has always kind of been you know, part of my mind, I guess, uh, with, you know, having this attachment to classical music, but I'd also be learning about Alice in Chains and Weezer. And I'd ask my teacher, like, can you teach me, like, their songs? And so half the lesson would be, like, classical and then, hey, you know, did you do your homework and all this stuff? And the other half would be him teaching me all these, you know, riffs from bands that I've really, like, loved. And then I, I started seeing, when you watch someone learning, like, picking apart a riff, like, learning, okay, where's the root note, here's the root note, and then here's the scale they're kind of doing, and, sh- and then just watching them do it, and then write it down, it down for you. All right, here you go, kid, okay, go learn it. And that's kind of when I started learning other people's songs, I you know, because I had seen him do it, I started feeling confident that, hey, maybe I could do this. So I did lessons with him for I want to say three years and every weekend, three years, and then uh, I think it's my parents moved, and then I stopped doing lessons. I was still playing guitar. I was always grounded a lot, so if <laughs> I, if, if I couldn't go out and skateboard, I would have guitar guitar to do and guitar world and, you know, like I said, learning people's songs. And then I got yeah, lessons from another teacher who was more of, like, this shreddy guy taught me, like, some Van Halen stuff and taught me how to, like, improvise over all these chords and, you know, kind of basic chords, like, blues stuff, and then just improvise. Like, here's your your scale and just go. And he'd, you know, he'd show me some little bendies and techniques and stuff here and there that he would do, and then I would, uh, you know, try to do the same and so, so i've always had kind of this in imp- imp- this ability to sort of improvise over some stuff whereas like hey i got this rhythm some, you know track going maybe it needs like this melody over it too so then you know i could easily do kind of a rhythm and then a lead and so, so that's kind of how you know, I was shaped into the guitar player I am is from those two guys who, who their, their influence on me, I guess.
1: Cool. I wish so badly I would have gotten guitar lessons as a kid, but I never did. Um,
2: that's yeah. pretty good for. I mean, yeah, you hear those guys are like, "Oh, that guy's never. He just learned all on his own." It's like that's crazy. <laughs> you know, you need, but it, I'm sure. Hearing your story of how it shaped, you know how it shaped your playing. It's like you probably just watched guys like really closely, or you, you know, you you have always had a great ear. Obviously, if you've been attracted to production, so it's like, yeah, it's a crazy journey going that way too.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Zach Knight says, uh, "What kind of music inspires you now? Um, are you still a metal mostly guy, or do you find new styles more interesting? Like the fact that pop music has had a subtle tropical influences appear over the past five years, etc."
2: I will always like a band, an artist with good guitar playing. It's mm-hmm. what I've always attracted to. Do I always want to listen to guitar playing? No, I listen most mostly these days to the classical music so i i'm going back to my roots you know like <laughs> i you know but i've always you know had this attraction to composing and doing uh, more violin uh, scoring stuff so i listen to a lot of like hans zimmer um i love uh james newton howard and Danny Elfman. I love, you know, that style of, you know, these are instruments I can't play with my hands, but I I can get a keyboard and I can do the MIDI for it. And, you know, I've, you know, I guess, you know, you you go to like Trent Reznor and like Atticus Ross and you're like, man, these are just crazy sounds, And it's like, I, I attract a lot to that as well. But generally you know, I love bands like, you know, Opeth Macedon for kind of the out there, spacey sort of stuff. And, um, you know, same with like In Flames will always be one of my favorite bands because I think Bjorn just has one of those ears for melodies that it's like that aligns with what I would want to hear. So, um, but Me I... too. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so it's, I you know but i do listen i like a good pop hit i like a good you know ace of bass was the first let me see the first cd i ever got and every time i I hear ace of bass i'm like god these are like the best melodies ever like i'm you know and that was just pop music way back then and and it's like i I've, i've always had that you know um respect for pop music but do i care most of the time no it sort of has to find me you know before i would go out and find a good pop song
1: yeah yeah i agree
2: yeah
1: um plus it's like man if have you ever tried to go find a good pop song like on itunes or something you have to sift through 20 pounds of crap Oh to yeah, like, like, and it's just not even worth it. Like my brain is drained after hearing like the first six garbage pale songs. You know.
2: Yeah, I same way. Like there's a you know. Yeah, I guess I won't even say this example. I might lose all met- metal credibility. Okay. Yes, I agree.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Um. Let's see. Uh, Mark Wustenhoggen. He says, uh any uh any advice on how to build uh picking hand stamina like yours? I know a lot of practice is key, but uh if you could, any advice and not just like uh play song X over and over again. Yeah, right. Yeah.
2: The thing is I didn't get into metal music until I was like a junior or senior in high school. So I was into punk music and uh I guess emo had like a phase, but emo I would not let, say contributed to my, I hate even saying emo. But I'm like just, I'm just I'm picturing
1: like you side. with like red eyeliner and like a, a combo, <laughs> like like a swoopy front, like shoulder length, like red tips haircut. You know? I I never did red tips. I never did eyeliner. I just did.
2: The, I did the girl jeans. We'll say that. I, well, you know. Shout out to the you know who never wore girl jeans before. It was you know. Getting made fun of, right? It's like, wait, I'm, yeah. a, I'm like a metalhead now too, you know. Like metalheads wear girl jeans, right. but, but I listen. <laughs> okay, anyway, back to I. You know, I'm from San Diego, so it's like, you know, bro, punk is, you know, like such the norm. and But like, I, I love bands like Strung Out, Lagwagon, you No know, Effects, and stuff like that. So guys who like probably grew up listening to like slayer and stuff like that's how in metallica like that's how they got their speed and like their right hand ability and then i'm listening to those guys to get like my speed and right hand ability mm-hmm. so and then once i got in the metal it wasn't really a hard transition because i like i understood i guess maybe from my years of like classical i'm like oh this is d minor i'm like or, you know, drop C minor, whatever it was. It's like, I, I get this scale. Like, I can do that. So I guess, you know, it was an easy transition. And then, um, but that's, you know, I, I guess then I was getting into the Metallicas. And then I was getting into, like, this and that. And I was like, man, and Fear Factory. And I was like, man, Dino's right hand is, like, the. Like fastest and most mechanical, mm-hmm. like and I still listen to Fear Factory this day, and I'm like, God, like know like it's crazy, it's inhuman. So <laughs> I've always like been drawn to that. So I've it's not or like you know, I guess Macho you could say too, and it's like it's not hard for me to to do. I just I I don't know. Like I've just always been like yes, right hand of death, and like if you could if you could down pick it or like downstroke it that's what you gotta do
1: I agree well dude Phil it's been awesome thanks so much for coming on this was great and again thanks for thanks for taking the time and I think people are gonna be psyched
2: I hope so and thanks for having me on it Bo and (laughs) it's been nice to finally catch up after you know having a few months off
1: I know I know we gotta get back at it Let's riff out one of these days. (laughs) All right, cool. I'll talk to you, Phil. Thanks. All right, later. Bye.
0: The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Line 6. Line 6 is a musical instruments manufacturing company that specializes in guitar amp and effects modeling and makes guitars, amps, effects pedals, and multi-effects. We introduced the world's first digital modeling amp, and we're behind the groundbreaking pod multi-effect, which revolutionized the industry with an easy way to record guitar with great tone. Line 6. We'll always take dramatic leaps so you can reach new heights with your music. Go to www.line6.com to find out more about Line 6. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.